Episode 4 of Adventures in VHS, the movie podcast dedicated to the lost format of VHS, where I take a look at one of the tapes that once adorned the shelves of my local rental store back in the 1980s. Not only does the podcast allow me to get all nostalgic for the films and the format that was so important to me growing up, but it also supports the upcoming Adventures in VHS book, which is my personal journey back to a simpler time where happiness came at £1.50 per night and late fees were a regular occurrence. If this is the first time you've listened to the show, it basically consists of me talking about the history of one particular film before taking a closer look at its respective VHS release. So that's taking a look at the wonderful cover art, checking out the trailers, and then actually offering up a review of the movie itself. Then, in the last section of the show, there's an exclusive interview where I'm joined by someone who can offer up their own unique insight into the home video era and what it means to them. Uh, so in the first episode of Adventures in VHS, I looked at 1987's Creepazoids before talking to its director, David Dakota about how VHS effectively gave him a career. Uh, and then in episode two, I spoke to Troma founder Lloyd Kaufman about Class of Newcomb High and also how his company embraced the home video revolution while the biggest, biggest studios around him sort of cowered in fear about what it would do to their box office returns. Sadly, I was unable to arrange an interview in time for episode 3's Creatures from the Sea double feature, where I looked at Devouring Waves and Monster Humanoids from the Deep. But wonderfully, that is not the case for this show. Uh, as I'm going to be taking a look at 1985's Ghoulies, a movie that had very specific memories for me growing up, uh, it seems only fitting that I'll be talking to someone who is also pouring his love of VHS into a, a new and very special project. Josh Johnson is the director of Rewind This, uh, an upcoming documentary that looks at how home video changed the movie industry and, and had such a huge impact on society. Uh, and I'm delighted to say he'll be joining me for a chat about the film and what VHS meant to him growing up in the rental stores of, uh, of Austin, Texas as a young movie fan. Uh, also, there will be a very special uh, competition at the end of this show, so stay tuned for that. I've just returned from Fright Fest, so it's kind of a Fright Fest prize but with a, a VHS edge as well so stick around to the end of the show to find out more about that uh, so yeah once again it's time to sit back adjust your tracking and join me for a trip back in time this time it's to 1985 to check out the colon munching mischievous world of ghoulies Jonathan is having a housewarming party Whoa! what do you guys want to do well, we could play hide and go seek. Yeah. What about Trivial Pursuit? Yeah. Trivial Poker. Yeah. <laughs> I got an idea. Let's do a ritual. 
So one of the main things that came out of the series of articles for Eat Sleep Live film that I did uh, that led to the idea of Adventures in VHS was just how easily I was able to transport myself back to being an eight-year-old kid uh, excitedly browsing the shelves of my local rental store and spending hours choosing a tape to, to rush home with. Uh, the articles themselves, which were called Rentals Revisited, were, were mainly based on me taking a retrospective look at just one film that I remembered picking up from, from that Video World store uh, that had a big impact on me for, for one reason or another. But while I was talking about the movies themselves, I found myself regularly drifting off and recalling everything else that, that seemed to surround them. Very often this would be simply a reaction to a trailer or a poster or an article or an advert in, in one of the free video magazines that I'd maybe cut out and put up on my bedroom wall. Uh, or it may just have, have even been what I'd heard about the, the film from a friend or a family member or even the bloke who ran the, the store itself. Uh, anyway, I, as I'm keen for the Adventures in VHS book to be kind of a personal journey through all the films that I'm covering, rather than just a, a list of reviews for obscure 80s movies. I thought it was about time that I did an episode of the podcast that was a little bit more focused on the experience of home video rental, uh, or my experience of it, uh, as opposed to just a look at one individual film. Um, now, what you'll hear later on in my interview with Josh Johnson is a bit about his reasons for making Rewind This. Um, and what VHS meant to him as a kid growing up, and also what led him towards making the documentary so many years after, uh, now that the format is, to most people at least, kind of redundant. Um, and in fact, one of the things that came out of our chat, as you'll hear, is is that in, in many respects, despite the fact that we live on opposite sides of the planet, we're both kind of taking a, a very similar journey at the moment, in that we both fondly remember VHS and how it impacted our childhood, but we've both kind of gone through the process of falling out and back in love with it, and we're now kind of excitedly reliving those experiences and recalling all the wonderful things that went along with them. 
which leads me very nicely to, to the film for this episode uh, of, Adventure, of Adventures in VHS, which is, of course, 1985's Ghoulies. Uh, yeah, so directed by Luca Bercovici, uh, a man who's done a great deal more work in front of the camera than he has actually behind it. Um, he does carry a few other genre credits to his directorial name, uh, including 1990's Rockula, 1994's Dark Tide, and The Granny from 1995, which is uh, a curious little thing about a geriatric zombie that rises from her deathbed to kill off the greedy relatives around her uh, who are looking to cash in on her her insurance policy. So, yeah, add that to your list. Um yeah, so uh, back to Ghoulies. That star- this stars Peter Liapis as Jonathan Graves, who is a man who's inherited a stately home that once served as the venue for his dead father's black magic rituals. And it also has a couple of brief appearances from Jack Nance as Wolfgang, the, the, the groundkeeper of the estate, if you like. Now, if you're a David Lynch fan, you'll probably have seen Nance pop up on more than one occasion. Um, but to me, he'll always be Pete Martell from Twin Peaks, who is the uh, the hapless husband of, of Piper Laurie's Catherine Martell, uh, and probably the only man who's ever been given the opportunity to say the words, there was a fish in the percolator on camera. Uh, apart from that, though, there's not really anyone of particular note involved in Ghoulies. Um, what is perhaps more interesting is the legacy of the film, as in what it meant to video at the time and how it's seemingly continued to live on. Uh, the film itself spawned three sequels, each one kind of getting a little bit more comedic as they went on. Uh, the second film sees the monsters loose in a fairground and getting up to all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, and in the third movie, Ghoulies Go to College, uh, they uh, the Ghoulies actually set up a social network with the critters and enter a long and lengthy court battle about the rights to the billion-dollar company that it, it goes on to be, probably. Um, the fourth film... Uh, looking at the trailer, at least, is is certainly an interesting one, though, in that it brings back the character of Jonathan Graves from this film uh, and makes him a gun-toting crime fighter. Uh, the other thing to note is that, and I should mention that I haven't actually seen this, but apparently there aren't any ghoulies in it. Um, even though a few do seem to pop up in the trailer, it looks like they've kind of been um, cut from the original Ghoulies movie and just kind of inserted into the trailer. I, I could be wrong, but um, I'm never going to find out because I'm, I'm probably never going to watch it. Um, because frankly, it just looks like a, a cheaper, a much cheaper um, extension of this franchise. Um, all you really get is a couple, of, certainly again from the trailer, all you really get is is a couple of dwarfs in troll masks. Um, and it really feels as if the director, who happens to be Jim Wynorski, uh, just figured that actual puppets um, would be way too much of a ball ache, so he just dressed, dressed a couple of dwarfs up and said, there you go, they're Ghoulies. Um, but yeah, none of these films, uh, Ghoulies 2 or 4, rightly or wrongly, would have ever been made were it not for the success of the first Ghoulies movie, uh, on home video in particular. I mean, it did get a theatrical release, uh, in the US at least, um, picking up $35 million on a budget of $1 million. Uh, so not bad going, really. Uh, but in the UK, it just seemed to be pretty much everywhere on VHS. Um, when it arrived, there were posters everywhere, and it seemed to be in all of my local stores and was, was being talked about a little bit. 
Um, and it was kind of one of a slew of mini monster movies that came about uh, around that time. Stuff like Puppet Master, obviously Critters, uh, there's Dolls, and then sort of lesser known ones like Munchies. Um, and all of these kind of had a decent enough life, and, and most, well, all four of those went on to, to build their own sort of respective franchises. Um, with the exception of Dolls, actually. I'm not too sure if Dolls did get a sequel. It may have done. Um, but yeah, Ghoulies was originally titled Beasties. Uh, and despite what most people think, it was actually conceived long before Mr. Spielberg and Mr. Dante came up with Gremlins. Uh, however, the success of that film didn't exactly hurt Ghoulies when it eventually did arrive after a period of not having any money to be completed. Um, and it obviously arrived with its new title and producer Charles Band has in the past alluded to the fact that Amblin Entertainment did have a close eye on their production and that a lawsuit against uh, Ghoulies was was actually brought at one point but was was unsuccessful um so aside from its timing uh what made ghoulies such a popular choice for for those perusing the shelves of their local video store well in my opinion you really need look no further than the, the promotional artwork that accompanied it which is is really where my personal experience of the film comes in um when it came to renting movies i uh, and i've mentioned this before i did have very liberal parents uh very often the decision of whether or not something was right for me would come down to, to John, who was the, uh, the guy at the local video store. He got on quite well with my mum and dad, and he, uh, he was that, he was, it, for that reason, was kind of allowed to act as, as kind of an entertainment moral guardian of sorts uh, if I was ever in the store on my own, which I, I more often than not was. Um, so yeah, if I'd if I'd wandered into the into video world on a on a Wednesday afternoon in the middle of the summer holidays, I could go home with pretty much whatever I want. But there were unspoken rules that were that were in there, um, and John was kind of the guy who enforced that. Um, films with blatant sexual content, for example, were out, and I and I knew it. Uh, so if I was to wander up to his little kiosk with a copy of Screwballs or Porkies, or even something a little bit more genre-focused like Frankenhooker. If I was to walk up to the counter with with a copy of that in my hand, I wouldn't have got away with it. Um, but I mean, this was fine for the most part because a I never knew I knew never to try, uh, and b I was much more interested in horror at that time than than tits. Um, nowadays, I have a, a much more healthy obsession with both. But at the time, I really just wanted to see sort of gore and silliness and scariness, and that's kind of what I was into. So, you know, I probably wouldn't have bothered picking up screwballs um, at that time anyway. Um, now I can say that it happily sits on the shelf behind me. Um, but yeah, so as I say, my parents were happy for me to rent pretty much whatever it was that I wanted. Um, but as I say, there were things that they knew that weren't right for me or that I couldn't handle. Uh, and while slashers and gore movies and, and hardcore action violence were all absolutely fine, anything that involved little creatures was a massive no-no. Um, why? Uh, well, partially because of the artwork for Ghoulies, frankly. Um, everybody has one thing that freaks them out. And for some people, it's clowns. For other people, it might be bugs or spiders. For me, at that time at least, it was little creatures. Um, any anything that involved little creatures or little dolls or, or, or anything like that it just really, really set me off and would stay with me. 
Um, in the Rentals Revisited article that I wrote for 1987's Dolls, I talked about uh, I talked a little about how I'd wake up screaming in the night, uh, thanks to the film's poster image that had been kind of seared into my brain, just the image of this porcelain doll that was holding its eyes uh, between its fingers. It, it just stayed with me um, and, and really kind of freaked me out, and that was very typical of... of those type of films at the time uh, but while it was Stuart Gordon's porcelain toys that sort of held domain over me uh, in the bedroom uh, over what might potentially be at the foot of my bed it was the bathroom where, where ghoulies would kind of make my imagination run away with me um, now let me remind you I was about 8 years old when ghoulies arrived on the shelves and walls of, of Video World and like all things that terrified me back then, I was kind of fascinated by it. Um, the image of that little green amphibious, amphibious monster with its rows of tiny needle-like teeth emerging from a toilet bowl was was enough to kind of make me literally back away when I saw it. If the you know if there was a poster on the wall or if that that videotape was on the shelf, I would I, I would physically back away from it. Um, and yet somehow that just made me want to see it more. Uh, the problem was my mum and dad knew that that probably wasn't the best idea. Um, and as I sort of perched tentatively on the toilet bowl waiting for that little green bastard to pop up and rip open my colon every time I went for a shit, I think deep down inside I knew that it would be wise to stay away from it as well. Um, in hindsight, of course, I can see that artwork for exactly what it, it was. It was just a brilliant piece of marketing. Apparently, that image was shot specifically for the poster um, and the filmmakers actually went went back retrospectively and shot an extra scene just to justify it being used uh, but to me it was a lot more um, it was an indication that there was that this was a film about vicious little toilet dwelling monsters that waited for you to use the toilet and then popped up and bit your ass all out um, so yeah stay tuned to find out just how wrong I was about that um, so to this day, or uh, or to this week, I should probably say, um, I have not seen Ghoulies. So um, this is a first watch for me. Watching it for this book and for this podcast is a first watch for me. And I'm watching it in the format that I believe it should be watched, which is VHS. But, you know, that's got a little more to do with my background than anything else. Um, yeah, so... I'm going into this knowing that it's not going to scare me, but I'm going into this wondering what the eight-year-old Noel might have thought of it and would this have been a damp squib at the time watching this would I have been disappointed or would my fears about the toilet dwelling green bastard have been completely justified um, stay tuned after this short break I will get back to ghoulies and uh, we'll find out <laughs> So here it is, after all these years, I hold in my hand, with no fear whatsoever, a copy of Ghoulies. Um, this is Ghoulies from 1985 on Entertainment in Video, this is the uh, the UK release. Um, it's on Entertainment in Video and also, also Empire International, and according to the sleeve is distributed by CBS. Just to take a look at this particular sleeve, um, the version that I've got here... Come, has arrived in a universal paramount embossed box so this is obviously not the same uh, box 
that originally came uh, with this particular tape. Um, the cover has been clipped very slightly, uh, probably due to sort of it being frayed at the top. Um, yeah, I can see that the, the top's been clipped for that reason. Um, looking at the front, it's got a very... I mean, the, the, the design of this is, is very 80s. Um, you've got across the top in hot pink uh, lettering, uh, they'll get you in the end, which is the uh, the Ghoulies tagline, which is a lovely tagline, um, and is also even more lovely when you realise that the tagline for Ghoulies 2 was, they'll get you in the end again, um, which is great. So yeah, you've got the tagline across the top there, and then you've got the uh, the, the infamous image of that um, weird-looking little creature uh, as he emerges from a toilet bowl, um, a very dramatically uh, lit toilet bowl, uh, it's got to be said. Um, and yeah, the one thing I always kind of wondered is, like, why is he wearing braces? Or is he wearing braces? Has he got some sort of medal round his... And, and where did he get that t-shirt? I mean, these are supposed to be demons, aren't they? And they, they've got little t-shirts? It's just such a weird a weird idea. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'll find out when, when I watch the movie where they get their t-shirts and why they wear braces. Um, yeah, because he doesn't appear to be wearing trousers, so why would he wear braces? Anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, the lettering is a sort of um, double shadow effect uh, thing across the uh, the base of the toilet bowl, ghoulies. And then below that, we've got um, a sort of a, bo- a separate box, which has the, uh, the cast and crew details. Uh, of the film it, of the, the film itself uh, with the entertainment in video logo at the bottom and it is one of the older entertainment in video logos um, because obviously that company is is still around and has gone through quite a few different idents over the years um, so yeah that's pretty much the front as I say there's a lot of hot pink and uh, hot green action going on so it is a very 80s sleeve um, sadly on the if you look on the side of it the uh, the ghoulies typeface uh, on the side is different to the the one on the front which is just one of those things that just irks me a little bit, I don't know why um, and then moving around to the back, there is a whole wall of images from the movie um, obviously there's uh, images of the individual little creatures themselves there appears to be um, people involved in some sort of ritual which I'm guessing is where the ghoulies come from um, and yeah, a few different images of teenagers, and a really bizarre image of of some people all covered in sheets, sat around covered in sheets. I don't know if that's some part of the ritual. Um, and again, we've got the little green-headed alien guy with his braces and his little blue T-shirt, who is presiding over the uh, the blurb, which I'll read out to you now. Ghoulies. On Jonathan's 18th birthday, he inherits a rambling old house. Through his explorations, he begins unlocking secrets and latent powers contained within his newfound home. But there are other dark powers at work in the house. Powers more terrifying, more hideous than anything you've ever seen. It is foretold that evil... Evil with a capital E, just just incidentally. uh, It is foretold that evil will triumph and ghoulies will walk the earth. And then it's got a little BBC 15 logo, which is worrying. It's only 15 that'll be fine uh, and running time of 80 minutes uh, which is nice and short um, I like my movies at around 90 minutes but this one comes in at 80 so 
I guess it can't possibly outstay its welcome. And if I'm as terrified as I'm as as you know I'm expecting to be, then I'll probably be glad of it being so short. So. Uh, yeah, just at this point then, uh, let's whack the film on and uh, take a look at the trailers. So, after the usual copyright uh, warning from Entertainment in Video, we move on to the Entertainment in Video ident for your future entertainment from Entertainment in Video. Um, and this is a, a, an ident without any sound, which is a bit sad. Never mind. Eddie and the Cruisers. Okay, this is Eddie and the Cruisers. Uh, which is a movie I'm kind of half aware of. I know I know that it exists, so I've never seen a clip of it. I don't think. Fifties inspired rock and roll. That was very brief. Thank you. I've learned nothing about that. Okay, Hooter College Sorority, this has got to be a sex comedy then. Okay, Blondie Music, Naked Women in, well, Women in Lingerie, Boxing or Wrestling. And Fat Women in Lingerie, Singing. This is very bizarre. Uh, transvestites. It appears to be a movie about a ah titties, right? It appears to be a movie about a school that is obsessed with breasts. It's also one of those movies where it's uh, 30 year olds and 40 year olds playing teenagers which was you know as we we've discussed before kind of a staple of 1980s cinema yeah so there's tits again um yeah so there's there's lots of women boxing in lingerie um a woman just got punched in the face so hard that her breasts deflated that's interesting. I've never seen that before. The the school appears to be run by this fat matriarch, and is this guy supposed to be a student? He's like forty-five. Is the film actually called... Oh, right, a girl farting, that's nice. Is the film actually called Hooter College? Oh, Splits. Featuring music by Blondie, Bonnie Tyler... Ah, Roadhouse 66. Uh, Oh, it's um, Willem Dafoe. As a badass in a leather jacket. Again, 50s in fifties rock and roll inspired stuff. Is that Judge Reinhold? That's Judge Reinhold. Nice. 
So there's a fair helping of sex in this movie. I'm not too sure. Right, it looks like... Right, so it's about a roadhouse called Roadhouse 66. And it's... Centers on a rock and roll band. And sex and violence. It looks like kind of a, a a light drama or drama with an element of comedy. It looks moderately entertaining, I suppose. It's got Judge Ryan. It's got Judge Reinhold in it. Willem Dafoe in it as the lead singer of a of a rockabilly band. So that's interesting. Yeah, I recognise this. Okay. Just to point out that my tracking has gone funny at this point. Ah, right, there we go, we're okay. Yeah, this is the trailer for Trancers, um, which stars a futuristic cop called Jack Death, if you haven't, uh, if you aren't aware of Trancers. Um, it's a movie that was recommended to me by... Um, well, it was a movie that was recommended on the Chinstroker vs. Punter podcast. I think Mike uh, talked about it and said how much he liked it, and I watched it on the train down to Fright Fest uh, last year and I really really enjoyed it it's a little bit Blade Runner and it's a little bit um, it's certainly reminiscent of a bunch of other things um, it's a little bit Blade Runner it's a little bit plot wise it's a little bit like um, 12 Monkeys as well um, Jack is a futuristic cop and he's kind of sent but is he sent back in time to I don't know, um, but yeah, it's, it's it's a really good movie. You should definitely check it out. Okay, let's say I believe it. You're a cop from the future, and you're chasing this guy Piper. Whistler. Why doesn't he just turn you into one of these zombies, or me? Trancing only works on squids, people with weak minds, easy control. Lena, I'm from another time, another world. I don't even know what you people eat for lunch. And there's your plot. So yeah, Jack Death is sent back in time from the 23rd, 23rd century and he meets up with Helen Hunt and they have a little adventure and I just realised how little of this movie I remember but I do remember that I loved it. How'd you forget a movie with a, a title character called Jack Death? I gotta run now. Yeah, there's also, uh, rather than have a motorcycle chase in this movie, they have a, a moped chase uh, where Jack Death rides a moped down a huge set of stairs uh, while cops are shooting at him. So yeah, a little bit to one part Terminator maybe, uh, one part Blade Runner, um, one part out and out action movie, and Jack Death is back and he's never even been here before. How can you argue with a tagline like that? So that's Trancers, definitely check that out. Uh, this is the um, entertainment and video ident that you're hearing now, and I think that will be also followed by the Empire International ident, yes. Uh, so yeah, that's the trailers for Ghoulies. So after the break, um, I will take a look at Ghoulies the film and we'll get into it and, and go through the review. Everybody shout! Come on now, sing out! 
So just to take you through 1985's Ghoulies, it opens with a scene that is uh, very telling of what the rest of the movie will be. It's a satanic kind of ritual, uh, complete with a chest-bursting ghoulie. Uh, This all happens before the credits, and we get to see the character of Wolfgang taking away the child uh, from the the maniacal high priest father, uh, and that child will, uh, will go on to be the central character of Jonathan. Um, and we'll kind of learn that he's been taken away from the father by Wolfgang and presumably raised by him uh, before inheriting this uh, this house later on. Um, we get a little bit of narration from um, the character of Wolfgang, um, in which the uh, the demise of Jonathan's father is kind of touched upon, but only very lightly. Uh, he says, when his father finally died a horrible death, I thought the curse had passed. So, yeah, referencing the, uh, the obsession of Jonathan's father as a curse... Um, we find out that it's now 25 years later and Jonathan has uh, inherited the house. It's a little bit strange, actually, because it appears that Jonathan has only just inherited the house. Um, it's not uh, clear. I mean, you, you, the, Jonathan is, is there with his, his girlfriend, Becky, and they're, uh, they're cleaning and discovering what is within the house. So it does seem to be that they've only just inherited, or that he's only just inherited the house. Uh, but it's a little un- unclear as to how that fits in with his life up until this point um, he mentions that Wolfgang is the, the only family that he's ever known so, but it's not really made clear if, if Wolfgang raised him or, or, or how that worked uh, or why the subject of this giant house that he had never really came up until this point 25 years later uh, so yeah but we're introduced to the house more than anything else uh, and we see Jonathan and his girlfriend Becky as I say Um, wandering about the house and checking the place out. Jonathan wanders off on his own and discovers a load of his father's old books and robes and he kind of starts to become engrossed in in everything that's, that's been going on in the past with his father. His girlfriend Becky starts to become just slightly concerned at first when he's got his head buried in the book around the dinner table and she suggests that the the thing that they need to do is have a party. Now, um... You know, it doesn't have to be a big party. It's not like they want people to uh, to come in and wreck the place. It's not like anybody can wreck the place or anything. And it's quite a collective that we get at this party. Uh, first of all, there is a character of Dick, who is a kind of lantern-jawed, uh, big sort of Italian stud type who's very self-obsessed. Um, and the first, his first line in the movie is... And we're also introduced to a character called Mark, who is equally strange, um, and spouts lines like... But yeah, Dick is certainly one of the most interesting characters of the piece, and certainly fancies himself as a little bit of a ladies' man. They call me Dick. 
you can call me Dick. And we're also introduced to two other uh, peripheral characters, if you like. Uh, one of which I immediately wanted to kill. Um, something about 80s movies and the inclusion of uh, what I would call a wacky. Um, these are the kind of zany characters, that, zany token characters that pop up and they, they generally wear sunglasses a lot, they generally have spiky hair, they generally have a sort of long coat and they do a lot of giggling and a lot of silliness and they're perceived to be kind of cool but zany and good god this is one of the worst ones I've ever seen. Uh, this is the character of Mike, um, I hate his stupid face, I hate his insistence on wearing shades at all times no matter whether it's dark or, or, or it's or it's light. I hate his tendency to make wacky noises. I hate his crappy mullet. Um, and I hate, above all, his perpetual giggling. <laughs> so yeah, I decided pretty early on that I wanted this giggling dickhead Mike to die. Um, but elsewhere, the 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 party kind of goes on till relatively late, and there's a bunch of them left over, the main sort of friends, um, including the Wacky Brothers, and they're all kind of sat around looking for something to do, uh, when Jonathan's father's book makes another appearance and seems to fall open a, a page that has a kind of pentagram and a bit of a floor diagram for, for him to uh, to suggest to the group. Uh, that they get involved with. So instead of opting for charades or hide-and-seek or strip poker, all of which are mentioned and, and met with equal measures of approval, they decide to go along with Jonathan's idea. I got an idea. Still ritual. So this first ritual is something of a letdown and something of a no-show, uh, or at least so it seems. Uh, the gang all get together and kind of giggle their way through while Jonathan is in the background kind of trying to work up some sort of black magic. Um, and, yeah, they all kind of stand around and, and poke fun. Uh, and you've got all the irritating blokes there laughing and joking. And there's the, the two interchangeable women uh, who all wander off back upstairs at some point to try and find something a little bit more fun to do. Well, that was fun. Yeah, let's go get another beer. <laughs> nice try, John. But what we see is that one of the ghoulies has actually arrived when everybody leaves. Uh, so we now know we now know that there's a ghoulie in the house. Um, it doesn't really cause any trouble. Um, we just know that there's one in there. Um, it does kind of knock about a little bit later on when they're having sex, uh, but nothing really happens with it apart from it wanders about growling. Uh, Jonathan, we learn, has decided to quit school to pursue his dream of renovating the house, uh, all the while investigating his lineage a little bit more. Um, obviously, his girlfriend, Becky, is none too happy about this, but she does decide that she'll try to be a little bit more understanding about it. She even seems delighted when he gives her a pentagram necklace uh, that he promises will protect her from everything. Uh, and she just seems completely oblivious to the fact that it's essentially the same symbol that adorned the, the creepy gravestone that they found in the grounds just one day before. Uh, the same gravestone that she was less than thrilled about standing anywhere near. And she's now wearing this thing around her neck and, and is seeming, seemingly delighted about that. This is all kind of well and good for a while anyway, uh, until she kind of catches him in the act. She wanders down into the cellar one night and finds him dressed like a high priest, and he's waving a pointed staff around and chanting maniacally. What the hell's going on here, Jonathan? You tell me that you want to drop out of school so that you can fix up the house, right? Right. 
So I come home and I find you in the middle of I don't even know what. But it's just before all this that we get our first look at all of the ghoulies as Jonathan sort of gets busy downstairs in his makeshift temple, uh, bringing these creatures forth to do his bidding. Um, and it's also about this point where I started to ask questions about just what exactly this bidding uh, that that he needs is, is supposed to be. You're obedient to me at all times. Now, initially, Ghoulies seems to be a possession movie of sorts. Jonathan has been taken over by something within the house. Um, his father, according to Wolfgang's voiceover part, and, and it appears to have given him some sort of quest for power as a result. Uh, so he starts to bring forth these minions, or, or ghoulies. Uh, I should mention the word ghoulies is not is not used in the film at any point. Um, but he just does nothing with them. Um, I mean, at one point they all stand around uh, peeking out from behind things while he makes it rain in the cellar. But again, there doesn't seem to be any kind of end game. There's no demonic force that he wants to bring into the world. Uh, there's no vengeance for his dead father. Uh, there's nothing. So, you know, at this point it's great because we've got some ghoulies knocking about, but the, there's not really anything happening with them. Uh, I should also mention at this point that, that none of them are wearing little ghoulies t-shirts or little uh, little ghoulie t-shirts or little braces, uh, which is a little disappointing. Um, so, yeah, in fact, their job at this point seems to consist solely of creeping about behind everyone's back and making noises like this. <laughs> One of the great things about the Ghoulies, though, is the fact that you get these weird occasional expressions from them, uh, which are pretty much accidental, from what I can tell, and, and seem to be based on the limitations of their little puppet heads. Uh, but it does provide some moments of real sort of accidental humour. Um, at points, they look genuinely perplexed at what's going on around them, um, and they have sort of real what-the-fuck expressions uh, as something supposedly serious and important is going on in front of them. Um, so that's something to kind of look out for. Uh, so anyway, at this point, uh, dressed in his favourite bedsheet, Jonathan decides that he needs to, he needs even more minions to do even more of his bidding. Um, so he conjures up some more, and this time it's not ghoulies, it's two dwarfs uh, called Greedygut and Gristle. And these dwarfs appear, and they promise him that there's a ritual that he can perform that will give him the power that he craves. Um, they kind of seem a little bit conflicted about sharing this information with them. One of them is very um, pro-ritual, the other one is very not pro-ritual. Um, and they are—they eventually tell him that what he's going to need um, is he's going to need to get a bunch of people together because this ritual can only be performed if there are six other people present. The evil one had him now. The things that would be unleashed that night were to be horrific. And I was powerless now at this point it looked a lot like things might really start to pick up Jonathan has all of his friends over for dinner and we're treated to a pretty weird and wonderful scene around the table uh, they're all wearing sunglasses despite the fact that it's actually night time and they are indoors uh, but it kind of transpires that this is because their host has asked them to or, or certainly that's how it seems uh, so they all sit around chatting, dishing out food and drink and, and, and the ghoulies start to pop up out of the meat on the table and they emerge from the soup and they generally seem to be peeking out around them and making weird ghoulie noises. 
I can only assume that the reason the guests can't see all of this is because they're wearing the sunglasses, though it's never really touched upon as to how or where these mystical lenses appeared, um, or, or whether it's just that it's too dark in there with the sunglasses on for them to see. It's it's vague. It's vague at best. Uh, I mean, Jonathan has already suggested to the ghoulies that their part of the deal um, is to do his bidding, but you know, to appear invisible to other people. So, uh, if that's the case, I'm not entirely sure where the sunglasses fit in. But yeah, it's very strange. Um, so yeah, he gets them all together, and after one more ritual involving these clueless friends. Uh, that seem to be sort of comatose as it's all taking place. We are in a position where we have a bunch of young people in a creepy old house that's populated by monsters. Now, according to the horror movie rulebook, that can generally only mean one thing. They're all going to start getting killed off in wacky ways, uh, involving household objects, garden tools, um, and this is probably going to be, be while at least one of the female members of the group is naked from the waist up. Um, all those general types of things we've got the setup now let's all, let let's let all of these wacky kills start to happen uh unfortunately this isn't really what what goes on um what actually happens is that jonathan's dad comes back from the dead and decides that he is the master and needs to have the ghoulies and the two dwarfs at his side in order to do his bidding uh, whatever the fuck that bidding might be children your true master has returned, and tonight you will do my bidding. So as you can tell at this point, much of the talk is about bidding and power and stuff like that. There are a couple of kills that happen while all of this is going on, and I do happen to know that it's around this point where some of the marginal cuts took place on the, on the UK version of the film. Although, from what I've read, it does sound like they were very marginal, and it was just little tiny tiny bits of of gore and blood that were that were eked out of it uh, for the UK cut if you if you're watching the US version or indeed I think there's a German version um then you know this this informate this these scenes are, are are intact apparently um the kills are not as satisfying as I might have hoped they are you've got a couple of the water ghoulies which is the green fella from the front of the the uh, the from the front cover there's a couple of those that take out mark and one of the interchange interchangeable girls um in a in a fountain uh, out in the grounds um meanwhile dick uh, gets killed by jonathan's dad who appears to him as 1980s blonde b movie bombshell and former playboy bunny bobby brise um and Interchangeable girl number two is chased around by a dwarf in a clown costume that bleeds through its eyes and then turns into some sort of big gooey green beast. Uh, but we only ever really see that for a couple of seconds. So, I mean, while all this is going on, you, you, you're having these sort of small kills, but I couldn't help but feel that I wished that the, the, the kills were a little bit more consistent and, and they all involved these little creatures, these little ghoulies, but they didn't. I mean, you've got this... Um, You've got people being whacked over the head by these two dwarfs, um, and then you've got this this clown that appears, and it's just it, it didn't feel very consistent. Um, and it was kind of around this point, while I'm watching sort of conflicted dwarfs squabble about whether or not they can go through with the killings, and Jonathan's dad waving his jazz hands about and commanding people to do his bidding, and oh my children, this and and stuff. I did start to feel a little bit of a twang of disappointment. Um, it's not to say that Ghoulies isn't an enjoyable watch. It absolutely is. I would definitely recommend that if you're into this kind of thing, you check it out. It's just that it isn't really the film that I wanted it to be. Uh, rather than a, a Gremlins-esque 
killing spree of, of evil little creatures biting out the colons of, of an unsuspecting group of teens uh, while sort of mischievously giggling and swinging off chandeliers and stuff like that. It actually ends up ultimately being like a battle between father and son for power over some vague thing or other uh, while having minions around them do their, uh, I'm going to use the word again, bidding. Aren't you going to preach your father? You did my bidding well. So, sadly, Ghoulies offers up no arse biting whatsoever, and there isn't a little pair of Ghoulie braces or t-shirts anywhere, uh, anywhere in sight at all throughout the film. Um, I can say that having watched the trailer for the sequel, Ghoulies 2, um, it seems like there is a movie out there that proves to be all the things that this film wasn't. Um, Check out the trailer for Ghoulies 2. It looks a lot more fun and a lot more silly, and I am going to be checking that out tonight, uh, in fact. Um, So, yeah, hopefully Ghoulies 2 will be all the things that I wanted the original movie to be. Uh, So, yeah, in closing, I'd say the Ghoulies did indeed, as the tagline say, get me in the end. Uh, However, I think I can safely say that all these years later... My eight-year-old self probably would have only had one thing to say uh, as the credits rolled on on this first entry in the franchise, and that would be, is that it? I am the master. I own them. And I now own you. So with video cassettes, when video cassettes first came in, we we jumped in. We loved it. We thought it was great. Our brand became pretty successful thanks to the home video market. Yeah, it was great that you would buy this video and you could watch it and see Elvira anytime you wanted to. So, you ready to have a good time? Video was kind of taking over for the drive-in circuit. Video was the new market for the kids to rent the horror films or the films that they wouldn't see at the mainstream theater. We went from a qualitative media to a quantitative media. The video concept made it easier, but did it make it better? I don't know. Back then, you know, everything was Betamax, VHS. Ridiculously, they used to charge $3 more for a VHS tape because you were buying more plastic. VHS video cassettes play longer, which can save you money. Big deal. I want to own a movie theater. Maybe instead of having people come to my movie theater, I'd take my movie theater to their home. Back then it was huge. It was like the Friday night thing to do. There were video stores opening up all over the world that needed movies. It's like Troma can make a movie that sells millions and millions of dollars of of video cassettes. Well, anybody can do it. When you're looking at a shelf, it's very democratic. The best cover catches your eye. Production price tag, you know, Terminator, $80 million. Puppet Master, $400,000. It's like, you know, it's not an even playing field. But on the video store, they're all on the same shelf. They're all in the same size boxes. Instead of having stacks of uh, film books, we had stacks of VHS tapes. When you have a passionate idea, you find the tools to do it. And that was... That was what was available. I was appalled at the improper aspect ratios and the lack of rich contrasts and predicted they wouldn't catch on. The VHS was announced to be totally dead. History of Violence was the last movie on videotape. Now you go into a video store and there's no videotapes there and you just, you just feel this empty sadness. Nostalgia means that it's over, right? And that's not true, right? No. Because it's happening now? Yes. Right? I can go watch a VHS right now. Am I wrong? I mean, I can see VHS having the same type of resurgence that vinyl has now. While I might, you know, hyperbolically rail about VHS, 
The truth is, it did make an enormous amount of stuff available, 50% of which is still unavailable in any other format. Okay, so very recently my attention was drawn to uh, an up-and-coming documentary about the cultural and historical impact of VHS uh, that's been in production. Uh, and kind of looking into it a little bit further, I, f- I discovered that it that it is kind of right up my street uh, to, to, to maybe understate it just a little bit. Um, the name of the movie is Rewind This. Uh, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by one third of the team behind the movie. Uh, Josh Johnson is with me. Hello, Josh. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, excellent, excellent. And yourself? Uh, very well. Brilliant. So, so just to clarify then on that point, there are a couple of other people who who have been working on the project with you. Um, who who are they, and what kind of roles do you have to sort of fulfil on on Rewind This? Gotcha. Well, I'm uh, credited as being the director on it. Um, my other two partners are Carolee Mitchell, who is our producer, and Christopher Palmer, who uh, is our DP and editor. Now, that said, since it's a three-person production and we're trying to make an international feature film, as you can imagine, the uh, division of labor it gets pretty blurry. So, in yeah. fact, we all kind of do a variety of things. Okay. So one of the things that, I mean, obviously uh, this podcast and the sort of book that I'm writing to, to, uh, as part of the whole sort of project, um, it really is kind of about my sort of journey and going back to my childhood and, and trying to sort of recapture a little bit of the, the magic of VHS and what it was to me growing up. So one of the things that, that fascinates me as an individual is, is sort of the backstory that many people, uh, that many sort of VHS lovers have and, and what gives them an attachment to the format. So I'm just kind of wondering what's what's your attachment to vhs well my personal attachment comes from the fact that i was born in 1982 so it was always a part of my life Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a vcr um, my parents adopted early and we didn't have money growing up so it was actually quite an investment but for whatever reason it was something that they decided was important for them to have Mm -hmm. and then we had a friend of the family give us a laser disc player when that was a fairly new format as well. So the home video concept was introduced into my life from the age that I was old enough to be able to use technology within the home. And what that did was it took this love of movies that I had and it provided almost unlimited access to consume whatever I wanted to pretty rapidly and with a lot of ease. So even with the limitations of what my parents would allow me to watch, by the time I was old enough to be selecting titles, the video boom had taken over to the point where Every mom-and-pop video store around our area, which was San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up, was loaded with titles and titles and titles. And I just remember being able to search endlessly through those aisles and find new undiscovered gems to bring home and watch. So where you had that kind of film school generation that started with the Lucas Spielberg kind of era, where people who loved movies and wanted to consume movies were able to study it. Uh, I was part of a generation that was able to do that from the very get-go at a very young age and really very critically and very intensely look at movies. And that experience of you know consuming film was such a joyous part of my youth. And then the other thing that home video did was it brought movie-making technology into the home. I mean, you could be a blue-collar worker and be able to afford a VHS camcorder and the tapes, which meant you could make and distribute your own films without any sort of uh, large-scale financing. You could really do it on 
a pensioner's wage. And uh, that was an incredible thing. And when I was seven years old, my brother and I started making these shot on camcorder backyard movies. And that became a real obsession for us. So, you know, my entire life up until now, uh, from the time I was about seven or so, has really been all about consuming and making movies. And that's completely a product of being born in the video age. Yeah. So, I mean, like growing up, it was with you all your life. So was there a was there a point where I mean because for me personally there's there's kind of a point where I wouldn't say I fell out with VHS but other things other more shiny impressive things took over um, but now I'm kind of I'm, I'm I'm really starting to feel those pangs of of, uh, of you know I'm really starting to pine for VHS again so I'm just wondering what was the journey that sort of that got you to make this documentary like after all this times for, for want of a better way of saying it well, I mean, I had a similar experience to you. When DVD was introduced, uh, I was in high school, and for my brother's birthday one year, um, you know, really the, the first year it was introduced, my parents and I went together and, as a birthday present, got him a DVD player. And then uh, while we were there shopping, I myself bought a few DVDs just you know, so that we would have something to watch. So, I mean, we jumped onto that bandwagon right away, and I was immediately sold on it. We had a Laserdisc player, but we couldn't afford to buy the discs hardly, so except for a few rentals, we didn't use it that much. But the idea of alternate audio tracks and superior picture and sound... Yeah. Presenting in the you know correct aspect ratio as a film dork, you know those were huge things for me. So I jumped right into DVD and immediately kind of set the VHS aside. And as things would become available on DVD, I would sell off those videotapes that I had been collecting. So I, I really just abandoned VHS more or less. You know I still had a few tapes, but it had lost its luster, and I had committed uh, fully to this new format. But what has happened in the past several years, probably in the past five or six years, is myself and friends and people that I've talked to have come to realize that about 50% of what was released on VHS has not been released on these later yeah. formats. And as we now jump to Blu-ray and to streaming and you know, it's becoming quicker and quicker cycles, all of that material is more or less lost. So as people that want to seek out obscure films or interesting films and have access to uh, the, the VHS era where everything seemed to get put out. Mm. It's really a special time that, you know, we all kind of long to go back to because the access was so much greater. And so there's really a huge archival value for VHS tapes now because they're the last stop. They're the only way to see certain films. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, some of the films there as well. That, uh, what will the actual documentary kind of focus on? Is it sort of the history of the films? Is it the history of the format or is it, speaking to filmmakers or a little, a little bit of all three type thing we're trying to be kind of uh ridiculously comprehensive to the point of sort of uh, mental illness you know yeah. we've spent uh two and a half years now working on it and we've traveled uh all over north america and you know we did a stint in japan and we, we've sort of tried to cover all of the myriad angles so it does cover the history and you know the impact of home video in general but then it kind of follows those ripples down where we see how it did impact filmmaking and film distribution mm. how it's created this uh feeling of nostalgia within you know a certain age demographic now uh you know everything from the box artwork everything that video created or changed you know we're trying to explore all of those different aspects and kind of treat it like the global phenomenon that it really was Excellent. And from a filmmaking perspective as well, I mean, obviously, it is a documentary, so you're going to be interviewing people and stuff like that. But you recently announced that uh, there's going to be a collaboration with, is it Laputa Animation School? So 
Uh, how do you think that has a role to play in what the finished documentary will look like? Well, we have uh, several animated sequences that we've had uh, people working on here in the, the United States, yeah. and we've already gotten the finished work, and those all came out great. Uh, what's a little bit different is that the uh, situation with Laputa is something that came about when we were in Japan. We were shooting interviews, and that animation school is located uh, beneath a cinema in uh, Asagaya, and the cinema is kind of a repertory house, and it's owned by somebody who is a friend of Miyazaki's and is sort of tied into that animation world. So they've set up this animation school where veterans of the industry kind of choose students, and they bring in these hand-picked students that have won awards or that are showing promise. And it's a really intensive curriculum where they work with these students to develop their skills and try to create opportunities for them. And we just happened to be filming there while the professor was you know, having some time off. And when she heard about what the project was, she volunteered their services as a project for the students to develop some animation for the film. But then it was kind of a touch-and-go situation where we hadn't heard back from them for a while, and we weren't sure if it was going to happen. And we'd already had completed animation for everything else that we needed. So uh, they're just now working on that, and I've started to see some of the roughs. And what it's going to be is they're going to be using this cut-out, kind of multi-layered animation style to tell a sort of storybook fable type story that's gonna be a piece of the home video revolution that we really struggled to tell through talking head interviews we weren't able to find people that could directly speak to a certain part of the story and we couldn't find you know footage or anything of the time so animation kind of became the only way to tell this so there is just a, a small section of the home video story uh involving the uh the distribution of a particular home video library and what happened with these tapes, this story that we really liked but couldn't find a way to tell. And these students in Japan are going to be working over the next month or so to create a piece of finished animation that will tell that story in a way that we couldn't have uh, using the footage and the interviews that we have. Excellent. So it is, it is kind of quite an international project, and I, I think you've kind of touched on already that you're, you're looking at the different markets and speaking to people in different countries. I'm just wondering... With the focus, is the focus of the film kind of on the U.S. market? And if so, do you do you tap into do you tap at all into sort of the U.K. market and how that was kind of different and some of the problems that were going on around here when when home video emerged? Well, uh, it's definitely uh, an international perspective. Yeah. Uh, that said, most of our interviews were done in North America, so the a lot of the information is going to be provided from that perspective, yeah. uh, not just the U.S., but you know, also Canada and other parts of North America. But we do absolutely cover the international explosion. Uh, we talk about the video nasties and the kind of video panic that occurred. Mm -hmm. We also touch on that with uh, our Japanese section. You know, There was a very famous case in Japan where uh, this serial killer, uh, after he was abducted, they found a huge home videotape library in his uh, flat – and some of them were very violent. And, of course, the media picked that up and it became you know, this thing where uh, because this guy was watching this depraved content, of course, that led you know, to him being uh, a serial killer. Mm -hmm. So we, we do cover you know, the video panic and the whole uh, global impact of video, including uh, the U.K. specifically with the video nasties. And we also talked to some people from the U.K. just about their personal video experiences, which in some instances are somewhat different from America. So it's definitely a global film. But I would say a good 80% of the interviews were from North American uh, subjects. Okay, so uh, one thing that is kind of global with, with VHS and home video and, and is something that, that really 
made it such a visceral experience for for people like me and, and from it, it it sounds like people like you as well is is the art that was involved um in in putting putting this this stuff out um i noticed that you've you've spoke to some of the actual cover artists that were involved in in creating different things and i'm just wondering are they are they aware of how important they were in in this whole world I would say in 100% of the cases, uh, they are not aware of that. It's kind of uh, bizarre in a way. And oddly enough, the work that now we cherish the most, a lot of these kind of lurid cover boxes and uh, these strange, like, hyper-colorful or bizarre kind of images, uh, in a lot of instances, I've found that that's the work they're least proud of. They actually did other commercial work that uh, they probably enjoy doing more and feel prouder of the results, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's it's not something that is appreciated uh, at a level that it's gotten back to them. I, I think they are somewhat aware that, of course, people would rent videos based largely on the cover, but there doesn't seem to be uh, an awareness of how influential they were to a generation and how much some of this these products are still cherished because of that artwork. Hmm. Uh, it's, it, I guess it's kind of a similar situation with the filmmakers as well. I mean, all all filmmakers are different, and having spoken to uh, to Lloyd Kaufman, obviously he's very proud of what he was able to achieve with with video in the in the nineteen eighties. But do you get a sense that uh, do you get a sense of how the filmmakers responsible for for a lot of these movies are, are perceived nowadays, and and what they think of their work? Well, there's. I would say there's sort of three different camps. Uh, Lloyd represents one camp where uh, regardless of how the popular perception of their work is, they're very proud of it. And they feel that they've been doing good work consistently over the years and they are excited about that. Then there's the camp that feels like they never got any recognition and there's a certain amount of – if not bitterness, there's a certain amount of disappointment about that because they put a lot of their own time and money into these projects that didn't really yield the results that they were hoping for. And then I would say the most common camp is the camp that didn't really feel that they were doing great work at the time. It wasn't necessarily the kind of work they wanted to be doing, these direct-to-video movies. And now they look back on it and they feel that that was sort of a stupid perspective. You know, now they feel a sense of pride and they recognize that they did something worthwhile and that there's still an audience out there that appreciates it. But at the time that they were actually producing this material, it felt like they were part of an inferior industry and that they weren't really making serious movies the way that they might have wanted to. And that, of course, is completely different uh, in Japan. Japan doesn't really fit into any of those camps where, you know, in Japan, the direct-to-video market and the theatrical market kind of blended together. People would be contracted by a studio, and they would make low-budget direct-to-video movies, and then they would make a bigger-budget movie for that same company. And so it didn't have that stigma. People could kind of fluidly move back and forth. So uh, when we were in Japan talking to people, they seemed surprised by this whole idea of a separate industry. There was no difference in the perception at all there. Right. So, I mean, and you've you've spoken to, um, just sticking with the films, you have sort of spoken to a lot of collectors and people who are, who, who are still sort of attached to VHS. Uh, are, are there any specific movies that, that, that always seem to stand out or certain titles that just seem to come up over and over again as, as ones that are very sought after or ones that are sort of absolute uh, catalogue titles that everybody has? Well... I don't know if this would be the same in the UK, but I know when people are hunting for these tapes and looking for stuff here, the same ones that turn up every time you go looking for the stuff, there's really two that every 
secondhand store every uh, flea market has, and that's uh, VHS copies of Jerry Maguire and the t- tape release of Titanic. Titanic. I was going to say Titanic. The amount so, of times I've been searching for tapes and come up with 50 copies of Titanic. Yeah, that's true. So those, those seem to be like the omnipresent titles that are everywhere you go. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, the titles that are sought after, uh, there's a few that you know didn't get large runs. So I mean, they're they're very rare titles just because there weren't a lot of them made, and they're very sought after. There's a couple shot on video movies by a guy named Chester Turner. Uh, Black Devil Doll from Hell is one, and the other is called Tales from the Quad Dead Zone. And those are tapes that are very much sought after. There was a copy of Quad Dead Zone that sold for over seven hundred dollars on eBay earlier this year. So uh, those are very sought after titles. The ones that kind of people uh, seem to be seeking out in a lot of cases are things that they had a very specific memory of their youth going into a video store and seeing a cover image. And the image had an impact on them, but they didn't see the movie. And a huge part of getting it now is the sort of one-two punch of being able to own that art that was so impactful and also finally seeing that movie that they've imagined you know, for decades. And that seems to drive a lot of people that are collecting now as well. Yeah, I totally recognise that as well. Um, yeah, so that uh, with with sort of the amount of people that are apparently collecting now, there's been a lot of talk recently about VHS um, and sort of a, a renaissance of sorts. There's the there's the exhibition that took place over in New York at the Museum of Arts and Design. Um, there's also the impending release of VHS, which is out in a couple of weeks over here. Do you think there's any sort of truth to that? Have you got a sense that there is this renaissance around the, the format? There's definitely a resurgence going on. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's going to ever become a large-scale thing or an immensely popular thing. But there's no question that both on the supply and demand side of things, there's been something of a resurgence. There's several uh, instances of new videotape releases happening here in North America. There's a company called Intervision that put out, along with Mondo Video, a few releases of Sledgehammer, Things, and The Burning Moon. And then uh, prior to that, uh, Magnet did a partnership with MPI Gorgon to do a videotape release of House of the Devil. And now there's actually a lot of indie distributors that are doing limited VHS tape runs uh, on a very small level and, you know, self-releasing these things. So it's definitely a resurgence and you're seeing more and more people get into collecting and you're seeing the prices on certain tapes skyrocket. But it's still staying within a fairly small niche audience. You know, there's maybe 300 tapes selling of a particular title when they do a new release versus, you know, thousands upon thousands. So I, I don't see it growing to become a huge thing, but there's no question that in the past few years, whereas it was previously dead, we're now seeing a lot of active activity, you know, a lot of regular activity happening around the VHS market. Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the comparisons that's been made quite a lot with certain people I've spoken to is that it's similar in in some ways to sort of how vinyl collections become with some people. Do you think that's kind of a, a fair comparison? I think it's a fair comparison in that they're both, you know, could be argued are obsolete or outdated media that people have an emotional attachment to because it's very physical. You know, it's vinyl is very large and VHS tapes, the packaging is very large. They're very much an object. And I think that's a big part of what people are responding to. I think the key difference, though, is that most uh, people that are collecting vinyl would probably argue that there's a superior audio quality or a superior level of uh, fidelity to 
listening to a record, whereas you know, even most people who are passionate about uh, collecting VHS tapes are going to agree that it's probably not the best presentation for a movie. Mm-hmm. And, and there are people that do prefer it, but in general, I think most uh, audiophiles prefer vinyl for that reason, whereas on the VHS side of things, it's more of just an aesthetic thing. It's more kind of personal a connection to the physical format and not so much a belief that it's the best way to see a film. Yeah, so I guess if we take those the, the collectors out of the equation and just sort of look at VHS and and uh, and to a degree Betamax, obviously, obviously as well. If we look at them sort of historically, how do you feel? What do you think that the VHS legacy will be? How do you think it'll be remembered as as part of the sort of wider history of film? I think it will be remembered as the moment in our collective cultural history where the audience took ownership over their media consumption. And I think that expanded, you know, even beyond film, you know, we now are living in an age where we consume news in a certain way. We really consume everything at our fingertips, at our leisure, the way that we want to consume it. And that was something that didn't really exist before home video. Home video really introduced the concept of, the audience taking control of their own schedule and how they wanted to absorb what information or entertainment or whatever it might be. And once people had a taste of that, there was a demand for it. And anything less than that was not going to be acceptable. So the entire way our society works now, I think, is probably influenced by the advent of home video far more than history thus far has given it credit for. I mean, I think it really changed how we perceive media and how we perceive what we deserve you know it it created a sense of entitlement in a way that wasn't there before and whether that's good or bad i don't know but it didn't seem to exist in the common way that it does now before the video era excellent well i I must admit i I think i can speak for probably an awful lot of people listening i think rewind this is is now going to be pretty high up on my most anticipated movies list so uh do you have any idea at this stage? I know you're kind of in an editing stage at the moment. Do you, do you have any idea roughly about what the, the possible distribution and release situation might end up being? Well, the plan right now is to submit to film festivals. We're finishing up a cut in the next month or so, and then we'll be submitting to festivals and getting you know it in front of audiences. And we would like to end up with a distributor that can get it out there in the way that we want to, but we don't know what that's going to be yet. You know, We've definitely had conversations with people about how that might go, and there are parties that are interested in it, but it's really, at this point, just figuring out what the finished version of the film is going to be so that we know what the best distribution model for it is. So uh, expect, you know, 2013, early 2013 film festival playings, followed by whatever that news is going to be about how we get it out there. But certainly at some point in 2013, a large number of people should have access to the film. Great stuff. And, and in the meantime, where, where can people go to, to find out more about the project and read up more about it and see the, the, the trailer, quite importantly, and just sort of keep updated on the, on the progress of the movie as well? Yeah, um, it's at rewindthismovie.com. And uh, you can also follow us um, on more of a day-to-day scale on Twitter. We are at rewindthismovie. Well, I guess all that remains for me to say is, is thanks once more to Josh uh, for, for joining me today. Josh, I think... I, I, again, I can speak on behalf of anybody listening to this. I think we, we all wish you the best of, best of luck with the, the film and every success. I'm sure you will have it. Well, thank you so much. It was really a treat to be on the show. I, I really like that more people around the world are starting to become aware of it because I think people are going to be surprised how much of a global story it actually is. 
So, just to close out the show then, I'm very pleased to say I've once again had some feedback, which I'll be looking at in just a second, but first of all, I wanted to get to the competition section of the episode. Uh, Just last week, I came back from Fright Fest, which, for those who don't know, is the five-day horror festival that takes place in London once a year, and brings together genre fans of of all kinds to to drink beer and get an exclusive look at the latest genre movies and have a good old chinwag with uh, with other like-minded souls. Uh, Apart from the few self-important movie bloggers who use the festival to prove how awesome they think they are, it is a great atmosphere and it brings together some really friendly people. Uh, And and like most years, there are some good, bad and ugly films to check out along the way. Uh, I was lucky enough to catch Frank Calhoun's remake of Maniac, which is an incredible update. Uh, an incredible update of the uh, William Lustig classic uh, and I would suggest you all start getting very excited for that Uh, as well of course there was VHS which is uh, this year's latest found footage offering that carries with it the increasingly fashionable veneer of a connection with VHS Um, now I say that because while I did enjoy the film I think it is destined to disappoint VHS enthusiasts as it really only carries the vaguest connection to the format Uh, however it is a found footage film it is an anthology film and I'm a sucker for both those things and it went down very well with me Um, there are a bunch of other films I could mention uh, like Paul Hyatt's insufferable Depressathon The Seasoning House uh, or Federico Zampaglioni's unintentionally hilarious ode to Giallo Tulpa um, but for me, there, there really was just one true star of the festival, and I, I think a lot of people felt the same way, uh, and that was Eurocrime, uh, or to give it its full name, Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the 70s. Um, this was definitely one of the most entertaining documentary films I've ever seen, and, and shone a, a bright light on a, on a forgotten era of cinema that I personally, and I know many others, had no idea about. Um, I would seriously recommend everybody check it out. It's very funny, it's very entertaining. There's stuff in there that you've never seen before and you really want to see, trust me. Um, And if you want to keep up with when and where it's going to be released, I think probably the best thing to do is head over to the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Eurocrime, uh, and you'll find all the information there about when it's coming out and on what formats and stuff like that. Uh, Now, as far as competition is concerned, I hold in my hand a competition prize. Uh, I have one Fright Fest goodie bag here, which contains a bunch of DVDs, uh, a couple of horror books, um, a copy of the Fright Fest program, there's some VHS stickers, there's postcards in there, and a whole lot more besides. And I'm offering it up to one of you lot. Um, all I want you to do is drop me some feedback. Uh, written would be great, an audio MP3 would be fantastic, uh, and all I need from you is a little bit of feedback that tells me about just one of your VHS movies or VHS movie memories that you have of growing up. Uh, maybe what was the first film you saw on VHS, what was the scariest film you saw on VHS, which movie kept you awake all night, um, which movie gave you your first boner, uh, which... Was there one that you've you weren't allowed to rent then, and you've since watched it? Uh, a little bit like Ghoulies for me. Um, anything, just one little memory of uh, of growing up with VHS, or growing up and watching your first VHS tape, and and and, and what that meant to you. And, and I'll read them out right here on the show. And uh, the winner will not only receive this glorious Fright Fest goodie bag. Um, but I'll also pop in a mystery VHS tape too. One one tape from my collection that will be wrapped up for you to unravel uh, should you be chosen as the winner. 
Um, the competition's open to anyone, so no matter where you are in the world, please, please, please get in touch and give me your VHS memory. Just email me on noel at filmrant.co.uk. That's noel, N-O-E-L, at filmrant, F-I-L-M-R-A-N-T, dot co, dot UK. Um, yeah, I'm not anticipating loads of people will enter, as it's often tough to get feedback from listeners. Uh, so if you do give it a shot, you will be in with a very good chance, I would imagine. Um, that said, I do actually have some feedback here to share with you all today. Uh, this arrived in my inbox yesterday from Jim Cogan. So first things first, Jim, thanks for getting in touch. And Jim writes... Hi Noel, just wanted to drop you a quick line to let you know how much I'm enjoying your Adventures in VHS podcast. I've given you a bit of a write-up on my blog, Crash and Burn, Life as an Amateur Filmmaker, and added your website as a permanent link. Thank you very much. Um, While I do quite like What's Your Damage and 35mm Heroes, uh, just to... Uh, let you know those are the other podcasts that I do with other people um, while I do quite like Watch Your Damage and 35mm Heroes I'm much more taken with Adventures in VHS I think the fact that it's your baby and you're so close to the subject matters, uh, subject matter makes for a very focused podcast I really love the way, the fact that you wax lyrical about the video covers and have a look at the trailers too that bit is hilarious and was well impressed that you managed to interview David Dakota and the legend that is Lloyd Kaufman. Both are pioneers of the kind of independent DIY approach to filmmaking that I'm trying to follow at the moment. I can't tell you how informative it was hearing those guys talk about their movies and what went on behind the scenes in terms of production, etc. I've mentioned on my blog how ironic it is that that your experience with the VHS video thing in the 80s is kind of like the absolute antithesis of my own experience. My family household was seemingly the last in the entire universe to purchase a video recorder, and and that wasn't until the mid-1990s. Upon moving out of home, I tried to make up for it, but even then the little independent video rental stores were already starting to disappear, and shortly after DVD arrived and corporate chains like Blockbuster dominated the once diverse market, I guess I missed out on the proper experience, but it's great to learn about it anew from yourself. Anyway, thanks again for your awesome podcast. I really hope you get the book project together. It's a fantastic idea. And without wanting to plug it it too much, in conjunction with my blog, which is more of a document of my personal attempts at amateur filmmaking, I also recently started producing a more general movie-themed podcast with my good friend and co-host John Wisby. Uh, So you're more than welcome to check both blog and podcast out if you have the time. Take it easy, uh, sorry, take it steady, looking forward to the next episode, Jim. Well, thanks again, Jim, and yeah, if you want to check out Jim's blog, that's Crash and Burn, Life as an Amateur Filmmaker. Um, I did actually have a chance to, to have a look at it. It is quite, it is interesting to, to to read about other people's exploits for, who are doing something completely different to you, and I've never been involved in the filmmaking process, so it is kind of interesting to, to read about what what kind of scrapes people get up to. So if you're in that kind of field, I would say go out go check out his uh, his blog um, that's Crash and Burn Life as an Amateur Filmmaker I haven't checked out the podcast yet just because I've been away for uh, well for, first there was Fright Fest and I was away for a long weekend at a wedding so kind of just catching up with myself but I listen to a lot of podcasts so I will certainly add that to my uh, to my list and check that out soon um yeah, I mean, one of the great things about doing this is it is something that's very personal to me, and I hope that the book will communicate that as well. Um, I've been lucky to interview uh, the people that I've interviewed, and you know, they've been fantastic interviews so far, and I'm sure you'll agree Josh Johnson is, is another fantastic addition to that list. Um, it was really great to speak to somebody who uh, has a very personal experience of, of VHS, much like my own. Um, 
So yeah, um, it's a little sad that you didn't get a, a video recorder until the mid 1990s. That's that's definitely the definition of, of late adoption, I would say. Um, but again, it's it's VHS is kind of a, a generational thing, I think. But I think at this point, um, even a lot there are even a lot of people that just remember it um, as maybe they don't remember the rental stores as much but they remember having VHS tapes it's still something that's kind of there it's not fallen we're not in a generation yet I don't think where everybody only remembers DVD uh, but you know it certainly won't be long um, so yeah thanks for getting in touch Jim That's uh, it's always great to hear from people and, and makes it uh, feel like you know I'm not just talking to a laptop even though it's essentially what I'm doing um, so yeah thanks again for getting in touch and uh, yeah that was Adventures in VHS episode 4 hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I did making it and uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter via at FilmRant um, you can keep up with me and what's going on with the book by visiting filmrant.co.uk or get in touch for anything else, uh, including the competition, uh, via noel at filmrant.co.uk, as Jim did. Uh, check out the other podcasts I do with Jordan and Ian from uh, eatsleeplivefilm.com, and that's the 35mm Heroes podcast. Uh, as you're listening to this, I think the, the most recent episode will be the Total Recall episode that we're putting together tonight. Uh, basically, that show is us three getting together once a week to talk about the latest movie releases and what we've been watching and stuff like that. Uh, you you can also have a listen to the Watch Your Damage podcast, which is the 80s show, uh, the 80s movie show that I do with uh, Mike from Chinstroker vs. Punter. We've got two episodes of that up now, and that's kind of going to be a sort of monthly thing as well. Um, otherwise, other podcasts you should be listening to include Outside the Cinema, uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Mondo Movie, Chinstroker vs. Punter, and the Gore Press Gorecast, uh, to name just a few. Um, I'll be back in a month's time with another slice of VHS magic for you. Uh, but in the meantime, take good care of yourself, and I'll speak to you soon.